Well, it is appropriate after that announcement to uh, transition to a message about resurrection. Don't you think? In the good timing and providence of God, this is the way that it worked out. And so here we are speaking of the hope of glory, the resurrection from the dead. And I'd like to introduce our message today by asking two questions. And these are questions maybe similar to if you have board games at home, you probably have some board games in the closet that are a kind of game where you have to ask each other questions or you you have to guess what other people would answer to those questions. And if you guess right or if you fake your friends out and they think it's you and it's not, you advance in the board and win the game. So uh, it's a, it, two questions like that. And here's the first one. What would you do today if you knew that tomorrow you were going to die? What would you do today if you knew that tomorrow was your last day? Now let's add to that question this. If, from your cultural and religious perspective, from your belief system... If you believed that death was the end of any existence for eternity of ever being in a body again, how would that shape the things that you would want to do on your last day? In other words, let's say that this is your last day to taste something, hear something, see something, feel something, smell something, experience something in a physical Body. How would that dictate then what you would want to do on your last day? What would you want to taste? What would you want to hear? What beautiful music? What would you want to see one last time? That kind of thing. If you didn't think you would ever be in a body again, would that change anything regarding the way that you lived your last day? Now, that's the first question, okay? So are you with me on that one? Okay, here's the second question. And it's kind of the opposite question. What would you do today if you believed and knew that you were never going to die? And let's add to that one. Let's say that not only are you never going to die, but you are going to live in a physical body forever. In other words, forever you are going to be seeing, tasting, touching, smelling, hearing. Is that five? (laughs) They got them all. Uh, How would that change what you prioritize about the way that you live today? How might that shape the moral and ethical decisions that you make? How might it change the things that you value, the things that you search for meaning in today? You're all going, okay, it's very interesting. I'm glad, I'm glad that's not in a board game I've played. Those are tough questions. Indeed, they are. But what we find, and they're very appropriate to the passage today, what we find here is Paul is coming at this from that perspective as he continues to challenge in the church of Corinth a certain group of people who were denying that there was any resurrection of the body. And we've talked about how basically what they were doing is simply bringing into the church the cultural mindset of the day. And, and in, the, in the Greek Corinthian culture, they believed in a kind of dualism where the body is bad 
and the, the body's going to die. The spirit, the immaterial me is good, and this will live on forever. And that's the thing that they really looked forward to. Oh, it'll be great when I get rid of this body. So to talk in Corinth about a resurrection from the dead, a bodily resurrection, to them was not good news. Why would I want a body again? I was happy to get rid of it in the first place. Okay? So they brought that in to the church and said, well, there is no resurrection from the dead. Because that's what the Corinthians believed. Now I wonder, because it's so interesting, here you have this culture that viewed the body as bad and they looked forward to getting rid of the body and at the same time, the city of Corinth, famous around the world, even to this day, as a city completely dedicated to sex. Their goddess, the patron goddess of Corinth, Aphrodite, her temple there in the highest part of the whole city, was the goddess of sex and sensual pleasure. The temple filled with male and female prostitutes and the average Corinthian Christian or not Christian, the average Corinthian, when they went to worship their God, would go and join themselves with one of these prostitutes, and this was their act of worship. It was a city just dedicated to sensual pleasure. And I wonder if maybe there is some connection between a perspective that sees no future for the body and tries to get every sensual pleasure that it can today. If tomorrow there is no body, then I make certain decisions relative to that today. And I wonder, of course, if there might not be some uh, relevance to even our own American culture, which simultaneously says that we are uh, the fruit of time and chance. We are simply evolving in this place There is no ultimate reality. All we have is what we see in this world. There is no afterlife. We're just here for a moment and then we're gone, which is the position taught in every high school in our community and the universities in the state of Indiana. And a culture like ours simultaneously obsessed with sex. Hmm. We sound kind of Corinthian, don't we? If there is no thing tomorrow, if there's no body tomorrow, then does that shape the way that I live today and the things that I live for today? It would seem that it did in Corinth, and it definitely is uh, today. And this is where Paul is, is, is going towards, and that's the question that I'm getting at today, and basically the point that I'm making today is that what you think about tomorrow and what you think the future is going to be determines the way that you live right now in the moral and ethical decisions that we make. So now we come to the text and uh, we have, we're coming off this glorious passage. In fact, they, they played the, the, the a little recap at the beginning of the service today, which I didn't realize that they were going to be doing. And so when I heard it, I was like, what is, is that the voice of an angel? Uh, no, that's me. So you've already gotten a little bit of that recap, but just to recap the recap, what we saw was that in the cosmic gospel, in this transcendent story that overarches all of history, it is about God and, the, and this relationship between the Father and the Son. And we saw in, in these verses how after the resurrection, God the Father gives to the Son all authority in heaven and on earth. 
and that Christ must reign until he has gained victory over all of his enemies after he has destroyed everything that is set against God. And that's not just in this world, and it's not just enemies of God, people here, but it is every spiritual dimension as well. Satan, the demons, every principality and power The sun will reign and extend his reign into every inch of this universe. And in the doing of that, he will destroy every enemy and restore creation to what God intended it to be, the perfect reflection of his glory. And at the end of this whole story, when that has happened, the sun will take this beautiful, perfected kingdom and will give it to the father as a gift and then subject himself to the father. That God may be all in all. And so we get to the end of the story, and we're right back where we started. At the beginning there is God, at the end is God, and the big point is, it's all about God. Now, Paul returns to our part in this story, and is going to make the point that not only is resurrection essential to Christian faith, the molecular gospel, but it is also essential to Christian living. Christian living. So, I really have three points. I'm pulling these from what Paul has to say here. Here's the first one. The first thing that Paul says is that resurrection is the faith anticipation of Christian baptism. Okay? Christian baptism. Now, I have to warn you, the way that he says this is in one of the most obscure most difficult passages in the entire Bible. And I'm about to read it now, and I want to warn you, if you weren't, if you didn't know that it's a difficult one, it's going to freak you out. So everybody that's prepared to be freaked out today by something that is in the Bible that maybe you've never realized, I'm going to read it right now. Okay? Are you re- I just want to prepare you. Are you ready for what it says? Because I can keep kind of talking to set the stage if you're not ready. So, are you ready for what many people believe to be the most difficult passage in the entire Bible? Okay, all right. Now, with that, don't say I didn't warn you, okay? Look at verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, Why are people being baptized on their behalf? Have you been to a baptism uh, for the dead ceremony recently? Probably not. And yet here it is in the Bible. Like, what is that saying? And as I told you, this is one of the hardest passages in the Bible. There, There are some 200 different interpretations of this passage. And one, two of my, my most trusted commentators, they sketch all of the options broadly, and they, they both come to the conclusion, we really don't know what this means. <laughs> so we're on somewhat thin ice here with being definitive about what this says. And there are two primary reasons for this. Number one is, on the surface, if you read it, a, a baptism from the dead, we have... No Christian precedent for anything like this. There is nothing in Christian history where they practiced uh, some kind of baptism for the dead. There's nothing in the story. The only people that we find practicing something like this was the heretic Marcion and the modern cult of Mormonism. The Mormons 
baptized for the dead. In fact, I've been told there's some Mormons in my family tree and that, uh, I'm not dead yet, but they, they baptize the family tree basically is what they do. That's why they're so good at their genealogies. They're trying to like save everybody. And so they baptize them baptism for the dead. The second reason that this is so problematic is that what it seems to on the surface be saying is absolutely contradictory to everything else that we see taught by Paul uh, and, and really the, the testimony of Scripture. There's nothing else in the entire Bible that says anything about this and everything else seems to say the opposite. That salvation is by personal faith in Christ. That baptism is a personal participation I can't believe and you get to be saved for it. And I can't be baptized and you get the credit for it. There's nothing in the Bible that even suggests that. So when we see this, then we come to it and we're kind of like, oh, oh, it's one of those passages. And I hope that doesn't make you uncomfortable. There are some things that we know for sure and some things that we kind of have to go, oh, we're not exactly sure. And this is one of those passages. So. In light of that, though, as your pastor, I think that I owe you my best guesstimate of what this is teaching. And so I'm going to do that. One of the biblical principles that you have to bear in mind when you're working through the Bible is when you come to an obscure passage or a difficult passage, one that's kind of fuzzy, you never want to interpret the obvious teachings by the obscure ones. You always want to interpret the difficult ones in light of the ones that are plain to understand. The cults will always do the opposite. They'll find some obscure passage where it's sort of hard to know what it means, and they will interpret it in a particular way in contradiction to the larger testimony of Scripture. Don't do that. And we, so when we come to this, we, we, can, we maybe don't know necessarily what it does say, but we can know what it doesn't mean by virtue of other passages that teach on this subject. So when we apply that principle to this, uh, as I said earlier, we, we don't want to say, oh, well, I guess it's okay then for baptism uh, for the dead. Because Paul doesn't necessarily endorse it. He merely mentions it. So I would say there's really, I would suggest, two decent possibilities here of how, what this means. Here's the first one. That dead means dead bodies. In other words, the personal dying body of the people that are being baptized, in which case it would mean something like this. What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of their destined for death bodies? Which is very comfortable. We all recognize that this body is destined for death. It's dying. It's decaying. Have you looked in the mirror recently? Last night, they were much more with me than you apparently are today. Look, I'm gone a week and look what happens. So that kind of cleans it up, but there's problems with that interpretation as well. The second possibility, I think, is that what it's, what it's suggesting is that when people are being baptized, that there are some who are being baptized in light of the life and faith and death of other Christians who've gone before them. So that this baptism for the dead would be people who are being baptized and have heard and believe that there is a future resurrection for all who believe and that they are joining with those who've already died in hopes of a future resurrection, in which case it wouldn't be that they are being baptized for the dead as much as they are being baptized with the dead 
in anticipation of a coming resurrection. And that's, those are my two best guesstimates at it. If you've got a better one, if you can silence the debate, please come up afterwards and tell me. I have one more service in which I could give the right answer. But we really don't know what it means. Here's what we do know that it is inferring. And it's the main point that I'm, I'm saying here, that Paul says <coughs> in his, and yes, I do have a cold, uh, in his development of this whole theme of resurrection is that if there is no resurrection, why baptize anyone? You know, the Lord established two ordinances. The Lord's Supper, which celebrates his death. Uh, baptism, which celebrates and reenacts his resurrection. And basically the, Paul, the point that I think Paul is making here is that if baptism is an important part of the Christian faith, and it obviously is, it was established by Christ himself, uh, and if it anticipates a future resurrection, then if there is no resurrection, why baptize? I think that's the point that he's making. All right. Enough on the obscure, let's get on back sort of solid ground here, which is the rest of the passage. And the second point that Paul makes here about resurrection is that confidence in final resurrection provides the Christian with a kind of faith stamina, a kind of courage and encouragement. And I think that this is going to be an encouragement to the church today. He says this going on, why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? All right, so here we have Paul now getting a little bit autobiographical and sharing a little bit of his own perspective and how resurrection has blessed him. He uses a little bit of hyperbole. He says, why... Am I in danger every hour? I doubt he was in danger every hour, but he's basically saying, why do I go through what I go through if there is no resurrection? And then he references an experience that he had in Ephesus where he says that he fought with wild beasts. Now the young people are interested. Thank you for coming into the sermon now. This is getting interesting. We're talking about Paul battling with wild beasts. Well, we actually don't know what that's re- referring to because we have no record of him ever being in the arena, you know, like gladiator kind of thing in the arena, battling against wild beasts. And as a Roman citizen, he would not have been allowed to do that. So most people think that this is metaphorical, describing an experience that he had in Acts 19, and you can read this later, where basically what happened was Paul went to Ephesus, he begins to preach the gospel, people's lives are being changed. And as their lives are changed, they're turning away from the idolatrous worship of Diana of Ephesus, the goddess of Ephesus, which was having such an impact on the commerce of the city that the businessman said, this guy is costing us way too much money. And they riled up the city and there was this mass riot against Paul and against the church. Kind of like the scenes from Cairo from a few weeks ago where there's all these people together and they're shouting. And what are they, (laughs) what are they shouting against? Not the government. They're shouting against this preacher who's come in with this message that's turning the whole city upside down. So Paul is nearly killed in that whole melee. And he refers to it now, I think, as like fighting wild beasts, is what it was. 
He describes his life as an apostle in 2 Corinthians this way. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. (laughs) Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the church. We look at the life of the Apostle Paul, and he wants us to look at his life because he wants us to hear his question. Why on earth would I go through all the things that I have gone through and that I am going through if there actually is no resurrection? Why would I do that? In fact, I'd like to imagine today if we had the Apostle Paul up here and he gave a message and we gave a little time for some (laughs) Q&A, that there might be somebody here who would ask the question, Paul, we read about your story in Acts and we read about your story in, in in your letters. Man, you went through a lot. For, for the Lord. I mean, all these incredible things. And I just was kind of wondering, um, like, how'd you do it? What, what kept you in the game? Because, like, I, you know, my, my kid's sick this week, and, you know, I, my boss is kind of ragging on me right now, and so, you know, my life's a little tough right now. I'd like to know the answer to that because you went through so much. How did you do it? And I think what Paul would say is this. He would say, resurrection. Resurrection. Or imagine that we had Jesus himself here. Now that would be quite a Sunday, don't you think? Front rows would fill up. And I'd be fighting you for the seat right here for sure. But imagine if we had a similar kind of question asked to Jesus. You know, Jesus, you went through a lot. We look at your life and we see all of the slander that was done against you. And we see how people were trying to kill you during your public ministry. And we see how you had (coughs) sleepless nights. And then, of course, we see your your passion week and all the things that you went through at the hands of of the Pharisees. And then the Romans and the beating and, of course, the crucifixion and death and We just, you know, like, how did you do that? What kept you going? What kept you in the game? What kept you strong in that? And I would imagine that one of the things that Jesus would say to us is this. Resurrection, baby. Resurrection. I knew, I knew that there was going to be a resurrection from the dead. And this is getting at the point that I'm making today. What you believe about tomorrow determines the way that you live today. In particular here, it determines the way that you look at the trials and the troubles in your life. If they are absolute and if they will never change and if it's always going to be the way that it is and there is nothing in the future that I can look forward to ever making something better, well, then I am going to be severely depressed in this trial and I'm going to be hopeless. And Paul says, look at my life. Look what I've gone through. Look what I've endured. Why would I go through that if I didn't firmly believe that someday there is going to be a resurrection from the dead? 
I think it's a compelling point. In fact, Paul makes the point here that he is so confident that it led him to take risks for the kingdom. To put himself out there. Not like a, not like some guy that jumps out of a plane because he wants the adrenaline rush. It's not a selfish kind of thing. But for the kingdom, he knew that there was a safety net. He knew that there was nothing ultimately that could, in an ultimate absolute sense, injure him. It's like this week I was down in Florida and had a few days of uh, vacation. I had a little ministry thing I did this last weekend and had a few days and happened to drive by the training facility for the Barnum and Bailey trapeze uh, thing. It's set up outside there in Venice, Florida. It's been there like since 1962 or something like that. And there were a few people out there. And so there they have these trapeze things, you know, and they're, you know, they're, they do this kind of thing. Now, why do those people feel free to do that? I mean, they, not so those people doing that. I mean, we'd look at them and say, you are absolutely crazy. But they would say, no, 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 I'm not crazy. It's okay. Why? Because there's this safety net. No matter what happens, that fall is not final for me. It is not absolute for me. And for Paul, the resurrection was like that. He knew that no matter what, no matter what the lions did, no matter what the, uh, the, the stoning meant, no matter what the, the Gentiles or the Jews or anybody else did to him, none of it was final. It was not absolute. Why? Resurrection, baby. Resurrection is the final destiny that I have. And there's nothing in this life that can change that. And so we see Paul here doing something that I think most Christians, and I include myself, don't do. You ask the average Christian, hey, what do you think about the resurrection? I love it. I love it. I am so for it. I am for it. I never miss Easter. Never. Celebrate the resurrection. Why? Because it means someday I'm going to be raised from the dead like Jesus was. It's going to be great. And from the perspective of the average Christian, resurrection, it's just something that's out there. It's a future thing. It'll be great someday. But it doesn't have any relevance to the way that I live today. And that's what Paul is saying here. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Paul lived every day resurrectionally. Yes, I made that up. Resurrectionally. In other words, he endured his trials resurrectionally. He lived today in light of what he knew tomorrow to be true. And this is where I don't think that we do this often. We calculate, we do the trial math. When we're in a trial, the math that we calculate is, what does this mean for me today? How much is this going to hurt me right now? Uh, is, 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 is this going to have a, any kind of a lingering effect in my todays? We think about our trials so in our life from such a myopic, closed-in, focused, what-about-today perspective. And guess what? When we look at a trial from that perspective, it stinks, doesn't it? Because the calculation never works for us. And so we get depressed because we begin thinking it's always going to be this way. But Paul lived his today in light of what he knew to be true tomorrow. And the resurrection, friends, it changes our calculations over our life. Here's how. 
Listen, this is a key point. Whatever trial, Christian friend, that you are in, and it can be horrible, and I know we have some people in our church who are facing extremely horrible trials. But here's what I can tell you, Christian, about that trial. It is short term. It is temporary. It is not absolute. It is not final. No matter what it is. Now think about the thing that you brought in here that you're all burdened about and your insides are all groaned up about. Think about that thing. Is it always going to be this way, Christian? Always? And the resurrection says, no, it is not. It will not always be this way. There is no hurt that is final and permanent. There is, there is no trouble that is, that is final. There is no diagnosis, friend, that you're going to get at the doctor this week. And some of you no doubt have some thing that you're worried about physically in your body. There is no diagnosis for a Christian that is final and absolute. Every need that is represented in this room is not a permanent need. They are all short term. When I am mistreated by others and I feel that from them, that feeling is temporary. Social categories that we chafe under are temporary, rich, poor, pretty, unattractive, smart, dumb, powerful, weak, important, forgettable. All of those short term. Life's painful circumstances, no matter what they are, are not final either. Family pain, marital pain, divorce, broken relationships, physical ailment, disability, disease, loneliness, heartbreak, and the daily discouragement of just living in this broken world that we face every day. All of those things, short term. For the Christian, listen, for the Christian, all of our pains today are temporary and all of our pleasures tomorrow are permanent. For the unbeliever, it is the opposite. All of their pleasures today are temporary and all their pains tomorrow are permanent. Now you tell me what you would rather have. And why is all that true? Resurrection. Resurrection. And friends, this is the battle that we have in the trials and troubles of life because the world begs us to believe that this world is all there is. And the thing that I am, this, this category that I am in, no matter what it is, is the way it's always going to be. I am always going to have this. I could never get rid of it. Christianity says the opposite. Nothing in this world is ultimate. No trial that we go through is final. No difficulty is absolute. What is absolute is the certainty of final resurrection for all who are in Christ. This body and this existence will go on forever. <laughs> I, I haven't grappled with that. I'm guessing many of us haven't really seriously thought about what it means that there is a guarantee from God through Christ that we will live forever. That's a really, really, really long time. And that existence will be in a physical body, a glorified body. 
what kind of body is that? Well, I don't know. Pastor Steve hasn't got to it yet. I heard it's next week's message. I think maybe I'll come back so I can hear it. I'm kind of interested in what my eternal physical body is going to be like. But the more faith I have and confidence I have in what tomorrow means, the more encouragement and stamina and perspective I have in these short-term temporary challenges that I have in my life today. What we think about tomorrow determines the way that we live today. Do you get it? The third point that he makes now is that the resurrection has ethical implications. Not just encouragement, we all love encouragement, but there are requirements that it makes upon us in moral and ethical behavior. We continue in the passage, it says this, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as it is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. A popular saying of the day, maybe you've even heard it in our day, uh, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. This is, this was the slogan uh, of the city of Corinth. Again, I mentioned to you earlier, they were famous for their parties, for their orgies, for the kind of expressions of sensuality that they they did. As you came into the city of Corinth, welcome to Corinth, let's party, was on the sign. That's just the lifestyle of the city. They loved it. They partied like there was no tomorrow. Because again, from their perspective, in terms of the body, there was no tomorrow. And you see how these things fit together. If you don't think that once you die, there is any more physical pleasure then what are you going to do every day to the max that you can in this life that you have? You're going to go for the gusto. You're going to do, if it feels good, you're going to do it. And you're going to do it until the day that you die. And that was the Corinthian way. That was the, that was the, the party mentality. In fact, you could even ask this question in a moral way. If there is no future existence, if there is no God, if there is no final accountability, then why not do that? Why not do that? I've read a lot about World War II. Many of you know that. In fact, I'm looking forward to participating in the upcoming World War II reenactment at Buckley Homestead in a month. Uh, You can go see me shoot Nazis there if you'd like. It's going to be fun. Uh, Children, it's play acting. All right. But anyway, um, real guns and, and loud noises. So I've read a lot about World War II, and one of the things that you, you read about was before a battle, like, say, D-Day. You know what you found the soldiers doing? Like, if they thought that they were about to die, the likelihood was that they were about to die. Guess what they were doing the couple days leading up to it? going to Sunday school and having Bible study lessons. No, that's not what they were doing. Gross, immoral behavior is going on 
when they think that they're likely about to die. It's the same thing, right? So why not do these things? Why not pursue every pleasure? Why not sleep with your neighbor's wife? Why not steal from your employer? Why not drink yourself silly drunk every day? Why not do violence to other people? Why not cheat the system? This is our culture. It says, why not? Why not do that? And the only way to curb that kind of moral behavior is to write more laws and to build more prisons. And that sounds a lot like the United States right now, doesn't it? Okay. Because when there is no tomorrow, when there's nothing that I have to look forward to, when there's no confidence, it changes the way that I live today in immoral and unethical ways. So what, what we see here is we see the, 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 we see the culture that we live in. And maybe it helps us understand it a little bit. The let's party mentality. The things that are going on right now at spring break down in uh, Fort Lauderdale and the kind of mentality that's going on there. Sayings like this, what happens in Vegas, right, okay. There's no accountability for it. I, I don't have to answer for this anytime in the future. What I do today doesn't matter tomorrow. So why not do everything that I can today? This is materialism. This is hedonism. This is, this is uh, Hugh Hefner. This is Charlie Sheen. This is what's going on. That's the philosophy. But, Paul says, if there is a resurrection from the dead, then the math changes in the calculation. Because if there is a resurrection, it means that there is an eternal future. It means that there is a God. It means that there is a final judgment that the Bible talks about. It means that I am accountable to God. And it means for the Christian that I want to live today in light of tomorrow. I want to take those priorities of the future kingdom and live by them today ethically morally spiritually it calls us to obey and to honor god with our bodies that body that you are in is a part of what god is redeeming it is his body honor him with your body previous point in corinthians So do you see how this works here? The fact that there is a resurrection frees us from the need to live immorally now. Why? Because I am going to have a body forever. And I am going to see and taste and touch and smell and experience things on a greater level than I can even in this broken, fallen body that I have now. I don't have to have every sensual pleasure now. I don't have to experience everything. i got eternity to do that, which allows me then to deny myself appropriately, morally, and ethically, and to live in a way that pleases God. Great quote here. Let me read this. He has come to the heart of the matter. Life in this world, immersed as it is in suffering and brokenness and work in behalf of the gospel, can all be reduced to folly if there is no resurrection from the dead. If indeed death has the final victory, and if indeed death has the last word, human striving and achieving, even if inspired by the grace of God, is emptied of all significance if death is the final verdict. 
How is one's work, indeed one's very essence, one's innermost being, more than a whisper if it all ends in death? Paul posits that the resurrection of the dead, which is the logical and necessary outcome of the already accomplished resurrection of Christ, gives life in the present its meaning and allows even demands that one enter struggles on behalf of the gospel and assures that life's struggles and hardships have meaning, a meaning that is ensured by God and will survive death's sting. That is an awesome quote. Did you hear what it said? Here is one's work. How is one's work? Indeed, one's very essence, one's innermost being, more than a whisper, if it all ends in death. And friends, this is why only the resurrection, it is the resurrection that brings meaning and significance to anything. Because if, if there is no resurrection, the things that we want to feel like are significant, they mean nothing. We're here temporary, temporarily. We die and all of our things that we thought were important, our family included, goes by the wayside as well. We're like roadkill in the universe. That's it. But if there is a resurrection, it means that the things of this day, this my relationships, my uh, service to God, my sacrifices for Him, my pursuits of evangelism and sharing that, and all the things that might be a part of living the Christian life, these things are not temporary. They have ultimate and lasting value. Because this is not the end of the story. It's not the end. Some ways it's only the beginning of the real story. And friend, I just wonder today if you might be here and as we talk about the let's party mentality (coughs) and the search for something transcendent, something ultimate, which is actually what is behind the let's party mentality. What are those young people really doing down there in Fort Lauderdale this week? What is it really? Is it about sex? Really? No, they are searching for meaning in life. What's behind the single bars in Chicago tonight as people pour in there and they look around the room? What are they really looking for? Is it a body or is it meaning and significance? Something transcendent, something more than this world that we live in. There's got to be something. And the Bible says it's not a something, it is a someone. It is a search for God. It is a search for a relationship with Him. And maybe this message about resurrection could speak to you that truth in a way that your heart might open to what God did for you. That Jesus did live on this earth. He did die for your sins, that he was buried, and that he really was raised bodily from the dead, that he is alive today, and that there is the promise that those who believe in him, that they will be forgiven and they will connect to that transcendent one who made us for himself. And maybe today you'll give your life to Jesus Christ and find the thing that your heart is searching for. And Christian, this truth has profound implications for today. And the point that I'm getting at is what we think about tomorrow determines how we live today. And all too many Christians, I think, don't think about their today in light of tomorrow. 
And so therefore then the pleasure is all consuming or the hobby is all consuming or the trial is all consuming or whatever it is. We, we live for today and Paul says, no, live resurrectionally. Realize that there is something that is coming that is decisive that changes the whole calculation. Bring that reality into today and live in a way that when you're dead, you'll be glad that you did. Resurrection living, ethical, moral, hopeful, enduring, persevering. And it is not lost on me the poignancy of how this applies to our beloved former pastor, Troyer, today. We grieve his loss. We prayed for him earlier. And he has, he has died. But what this means is this, that for Pastor Troyer, the best is yet to come. And we have this encouragement and this hope, not just for him, but for us as well. Because our day is coming. We are like a vapor. We're here and we're gone It will be here soon. What we believe about tomorrow determines how we live today. May God bless this word to us. May God bless his word to us. Amen.